This podcast channel is about you, successful international entrepreneurs, successful expats, successful investors, sponsored by HCJ Contacts. Okay, so thank you for joining us, HCJ.tax. For those who are new, we do this every week. So if you have a, uh, a look on our website, hcj.tax forward slash events, you can see what the topic is each week. So the topic is slightly different each week. And we're open to suggestions. If there's a, you know an area that you want us to dive into and we haven't been doing it, just send us a message. That's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely be guided by what you guys want to explore. For those who are repeats, good to see you again. So, right, okay, great. So we're good. Just for the sake of clarity, so we're gonna talk about topics related to tax. Uh, we're gonna talk about nomad tax, digital nomads, location independent entrepreneurs, remote workers, whatever the term is, more or less the same thing. But please be advised that we're not giving advice. What we're doing is we're having a general conversation about general principles. The idea is that you're gonna walk away equipped with the concepts needed to engage with your preferred tax team. Again, this is not advice. You can look at it as entertainment. You can look at it as, as, you can look at it as education, but it certainly is not advice. We, Legally, because we're licensed, we can't give advice, right? Without knowing the full facts, which could never be gleaned in a couple of minutes over Zoom or over social media, right? This is being recorded for those of you who are joining on Zoom. If you do not want your image to be captured, it's simple, keep your camera switched off. For, we invited you to submit questions in advance. Thank you to those that did, to those that did not. Feel free to type in the box below. You can type below whether you Zoom or on YouTube or whatever. And we'll get to them in the order in which we receive them. For those who are asking, yes, everything is being recorded and it'll be available on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Amazon, uh, Google Play, basically wherever you get your preferred podcast. So Without further ado, let's just jump in. So first question to Joe is asking, has there been any updates on the US moving to an RBT system? I'm assuming Joe, you mean residence-based taxation. There have been, and there will continue to be challenges, whether it's politicians posturing or legal, you know, uh, legal positions being adopted or legal action being taken and, and, and whatever. But long and short is, uh, I doubt that that will ever happen. Uh, I know there are people who are strongly advocating the opposite. Maybe they have political motives. We're not into politics. We just call it like we see it. If it is, you actually take a step back and look at what's going on on the macro level, not just in uh, the US, but globally. Tax, the tax landscape is obviously evolving, right? And more and more countries are actually moving towards global reach. Transparency is now the norm. The days of being able to hide are long gone for those who take this seriously. Uh, and, and yeah, and then a lot of countries, especially the wealthier countries are looking for taxes as a means of plugging holes in their balance sheets, which have been caused by a lot of factors, including the health crisis that we've been going through over the past couple of years. So there's a need for revenue collection. There's a movement to seeing data as super important. Uh, when you when you look at the U.S. tax code in particular, with international taxes, it's less about revenue collection and it's more about data collection. We know this because when we look at the penalties that are applied, weirdly enough, the harshest penalties are for non-disclosure of international positions, transactions, investments, as opposed to not just paying your taxes. So if you don't disclose a, uh, uh, some sort of bank account you may have overseas, it may be up to 50% of the unreported balance per year. 
you know, plus interest, plus penalties, plus possible jail time. So it's civil and criminal. So I don't think that that's going to unwind. I don't think the U.S. is going to unwind their position. And more importantly, when you look at other countries, they may be following suit. A lot of typically the U.S. and another country called Eritrea are the only two countries in the world which have citizenship based taxation but increasingly a number of wealthy countries are saying and not even wealthy countries like the europeans or that but other emerging markets are also saying there are circumstances where even though you've left your your country of citizenship there may be fallback rules that would apply and you still maintain their reach there you're still within the reach of that tax net even though you no longer reside there so situations where you could have severed tax residency before are no longer being allowed and this is a trend that we've been seeing for decades now and therefore i don't think the world is suddenly going to reverse track and i don't think the us is going to either there's no there's no political mileage in it there's too much to be gained by continuing in the present trajectory sorry sorry to be the conveyor of bad news joe Moving on, okay, this is an interesting question. Which is the best passport? So for those who are internationally mobile, you have the opportunity to pick up a resident, pick up residence in many countries and you know, an increasing number of nations, jurisdictions want to attract uh, remote workers, location independent entrepreneurs want to attract uh, nomads. And they incentivize you to do so with various visas, uh, incentives around long-term residency, as well as potentially citizenship. So there's that. And then, of course, there is the investment migration programs where you can, if you have the, the funds and it's a good fit for you for what you're looking for, it's also an option in many jurisdictions. So which is the best one? Obviously, that depends. I'm not selling residency. I'm not selling citizenship. We, we help people uh make that decision especially from a tax perspective we help people with pre-immigration planning and pre-expatriation planning so if you're leaving certain jurisdictions we can help you but you know we swim in our lane which is tax right so we have no dog in this fight and but in terms if you define best as a passport which will give you access to many of the more popular jurisdictions, at least from a Western perspective. And of course, everyone is unique, right? Depending on what kind of business you're in, what you're into. But I think Ireland is really a strong contender right now because Ireland is part of the common travel agreement or area with the UK. So even though the UK has left the EU, there is still freedom of movement between the Republic of Ireland and the UK. And of course, Ireland is part of the EU. So there's freedom of movement within the EU with an Irish passport. So it is probably one of the strongest travel documents. Of course, you have uh, relatively easier access to the, the big English speaking countries, Canada, the US, Australia, New Zealand, uh so yeah i think that that is yeah probably would be my vote but of course everyone's situation is different you need to speak to someone who will understand your situation inside out and can advise you accordingly next question where should i set up an offshore company we get this all the time you know like every week we get that question asked and i think you know i was talking to another tax advisor uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago when we were doing a, a live stream on Australia US taxes and was, we you know just chit chat with the, my Australian counterpart and we're thinking what is it is it the movies we think it's like the media that gives us impression that hey if I get an offshore company I'm going to be able to save so much money and whatever. No, that's not the way it works. Maybe historically up until maybe the early 80s that was potentially uh an option uh you there was decided tax advantages and then there was super privacy but now in the age of transparency and the modern tax rules that we have and the modern banking rules that we have those many of those so-called advantages are gone so as to where you should set up an offshore company it really depends it really depends if it is that you're trying to hide then you can try there i'm sure unfortunately there are less reputable 
uh, unlicensed professionals who tend to not be in any regulated jurisdiction. So they won't be in Western Europe, they'll be in Eastern Europe, they won't be in Singapore, they'll be somewhere unregulated nearby. They won't be in North America, they'll be in Central and South America. So they don't have to worry about regulation and they they pay they play fast and furious with the rules. And and that that's a choice you can make. But we believe that that's not long-term thinking. What you need to do is understand, uh, we need to understand what is your overall strategy, what is your business model, what type of investments you have, uh, and whatever. So if it is a, uh, an opportunity for asset protection, I, I think, yeah, asset protection, and it maybe sometimes offshore structures would work in that, in, in that uh, situation, or maybe for better compliance, and maybe for some tax optimization. So it may be, uh, there may be cases where first and foremost, a structure must have commercial benefit because most advanced economies have anti-avoidance rules. So if you set up a structure just for the purpose of evading tax or avoiding tax or just or perhaps under some circumstances reducing tax, uh, more times than not, anti-avoidance rules kick in and they the structure can be challenged. So there must be uh, an overriding commercial benefit to a structure that may or may not involve an offshore company. And then if secondary to that, there is a tax benefit, then, then yeah, I mean, tax optimization can be thrown in there. But if it is you go into a situation saying, hey, how can I you know, minimize my tax without being conscious of the... Uh, the commercial benefits and the anti-avoidance rules and the management and control rules, then you're probably going to get in trouble in the long term. Right after that advisor takes your money and does whatever you it is you think you want done, and they disappear into the sunset and stop answering your calls and your emails, that's when the tax offices start knocking on your door. So just by having a company in another jurisdiction doesn't necessarily mean that the substance of the overall transaction changes because you may still if you especially if you're the key decision maker you're running that company from wherever it is you're located so even though it's incorporated elsewhere there's something called a place of effective management or management and control rules or permanent establishment rules or nexus rules there are lots of terms used to describe the same thing that you create a taxable presence by where you are as a key decision maker, where your team, your key decision makers in your team may be. So I would say the question, where should I set up an offshore company may not be the, the best one, but it should be, here's my business model. How can I optimize my business model for commercial reasons, uh, uh, asset protection reasons. I may have some IP that I want to protect uh, to provide better customer service or to be uh, more tax efficient. Yeah, and, and better able to comply with certain local rules and jurisdictions in which you play. So that's my thinking. Sorry, I know that's not what you want to hear. <laughs> uh, moving on. Someone's asking about inheritance taxes in Portugal. Right. Okay. I, I, I like that kind of question because it does show like long-term strategic thinking. I could see that this person is a thinker, not that other people aren't thinkers, but this person is really thinking longer term. If you're thinking in terms of what is going to, I mean, we all getting older, right? So at some point in time, you, you know, you think about what is happening to your assets that you built over your working life. Or on the other hand, if you, for those with parents that are getting older, there's your parent situations or friends or siblings or, or, or whatever. So you may be conscious that, hey, it's not the most exciting topic, but it needs to be thought about. So, if, so in Portugal, like in many jurisdictions, there are kind of inheritance taxes, but they do get particularly complex. At least uh, we did, we had some questions on that. I think a couple of weeks ago, last week or the week before, when we did a live stream on Portugal taxes. And, and you can find all the previous live streams on hcj.tax, or if you could just go to YouTube and look for hcj.tax and you can do a search and it'll, it'll pop up. So it was asked quite a few times by some people. So, you know, just that long, longer term perspective. 
So it is, to, to answer your question, it is relatively complex. Yes, there it does exist, but it depends. It depends on, you know, what the, the assets are, whether it's Portugal status or worldwide, uh, where you based, obviously, and who is it going to? Because there are different rules for if it's going to, like, uh, a friend as opposed to direct dissidents like kids or your spouse, your surviving spouse. So, so there are different rules that would apply. So it is, it is something worth sitting with uh, an estate planning team who is experienced and qualified in the jurisdictions in which you do have exposure. For the most part, those jurisdictions that have estate planning or estate taxes, they are just that. So even though nominally they may be termed an inheritance tax, it's actually not a tax on the person who's the beneficiary who's receiving it, but it's on the estate of the person who's passed away. I think one of the notable exceptions, at least in the developed world, would be Ireland, where there is a genuine, I believe, inheritance tax. And again, we do live streams on Irish tax as well uh, with Damien. So again, you can have a look at hg.tax for that. But so Ireland aside, so I'm thinking about the UK, I'm thinking about Europe, uh, obviously North America, you're looking at taxes on the estate. So whoever the executor, the administrator of your estate or the estate in question, would, that would be part of their responsibilities for filing tax returns and making sure that everything is settled before it, it goes on to, to whoever the beneficiaries are. In addition to which, you know, for those who are thinking strategically, which is, which as I say, is a good thing. In the last couple of years, there's been a, an OECD report on wealth and inequality. And, uh, and yeah, so basically there seems to be consensus among the OECD nations. So these are the, basically a grouping of the wealthy countries and they are really conscious of the fact that, hey, income inequality is growing and they're looking at so-called inheritance taxes as well as wealth taxes as a way to address it. So, so from a policy position, uh, using it as a way to address this, this, this metric uh, yeah, I mean, we have judgments as to whether that's a good thing or bad thing, whether it's double tax or triple tax or, or whatever the case may be. But hey, it is what it is. So it is a reality and something that you need to factor into, into your file planning. So I think it's Warren Buffett who says something to the effect that you should leave your kids with enough so that they can do anything, but never leave them enough so that they can do nothing. So I, I think that is really in, informing some, some of the thinking there. So again, something to think about in, in your follow planning as you choose the right team to help you work through that. Next question, seizing passports. Yeah, so someone's asking uh, from, I guess you're asking, yeah, from you American and the idea that it's true. It's not a rumor. If it is that you have uh, you owe taxes. There is now a connect between the the Treasury Department, which a part of which is the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, as well as the State Department, which is responsible for passports. So there are circumstances if you have a, a tax liability above a certain amount, and you're not in touch with the IRS, and you're not trying to deal with it. You're trying to you you know they can't reach you, or that you don't want to be contacted. You're non-responsive then you they can issue uh, some sort of directive or order so that you have problems with your passport. So we have had clients with that situation. Wow. So essentially, historically, you're, you're correct. The, the Internal Revenue Service, which is part of the Treasury Department, didn't necessarily communicate with the State Department. So Treasury and State didn't really talk to each other, but now they do. Rules have been uh, rules have been instituted. More importantly, policies and procedures are in play, which means it's happening more often than ever before. So we have had clients who, for whatever reason, they you know when you're traveling, especially if it's super important to be on top of your mail. It's really really important to be on top of your mail. Whatever mailing address you provided the Internal Revenue Service with in your last filed return make sure that there's someone there who's paying attention 
and we've had situations where people are traveling or they're working remotely and they left their brother, sister, parents, whoever it is, pay attention to the mail and they don't. Something comes, they think it's junk mail, they don't open it, they don't check. And, you know, what? it could be a bill and it gets worse. And, and once they, I think once the liability is over $50,000 and the IRS is not hearing from you, they, it, it seems like it's almost automatic that something goes to state and people have problems with their passport. So the, uh, I, we've not seen any situation where your passport is just canceled. But what happens is when you go into the embassy in whatever country you're in, and especially you'd routinely go in to get your passport renewed, or maybe it's been lost or damaged or, or whatever that case may be. And you go in and you're able to verify your identity and, they are, and the embassy is telling you, sorry, we can't help you because there's an issue with, with your taxes. So it is, it is very, very real. It's not a rumor. It has happened and it is, happen, is happening and it will increasingly get worse. So please, please, please stay on top of your mail. If it is that you are no longer at whatever address you were in in the US, and I'm speaking to US exposed persons, make sure that you, you there's a form that you can fill out to update the IRS let them know that you you change address. There's also a new uh, facility with the IRS website where you can log in, and you know, there's a obviously a lot of identity verification. But you can log in and you can see all the correspondence. You can see your prior tax returns. You can see what's been processed, what's in the queue, whatever. So get onto the IRS website, irs.gov, and register your account. Just uh, you know. I think it's definitely, definitely worth it to stay on top of things, especially with the whole health situation, which I can't use the name, otherwise we get censored. So we know there's a health situation going on. And as a result, IRS processing has just got worse. So people are not, we have had uh, clients abroad in the Philippines, in Australia, in Singapore, in you know parts of Western Europe, where they're missing IRS notices. So, and they will get, uh, a notice of a lien or asset seizure and then they're like we didn't even get a warning we don't even know what's going on we didn't get the prior notices it's happening all the time to many people it's not just you so the point is get on irs.gov register and stay on top of all those irs notices that may or may not be going to you hope that helps uh moving down okay someone has a Long question. Okay, I'm a 64-year-old U.S. citizen, and I'm far from the six-figure income crowd. Since 2005, I've lived and worked overseas, so I've not been paying into U.S. Social Security during those years. I'm eligible for Social Security income, but I don't plan to access it before 67. In addition to the above, last year, I became an independent contractor for a U.S.-based company and started paying Social Security and self-employment taxes. Okay. I'm planning to move to Portugal. Yeah, I know. Really popular right now. I'm planning to move to Portugal in D7 based solely on my savings, Social Security, and brokerage investments, not my digital work, my remote work, because I've been told my work as an international language assessor no longer qualifies me for the NHR. Thus, blah, blah, blah. Um, um, if I declare my digital artwork, my digital work in Portugal, I'm looking at Portugal taxes around 28%, and I don't think that includes the social security as well, right? Portugal and the US have a, a social security tax treaty, which is actually called a totalization agreement. It stipulates that I should only pay uh, social security tax in one jurisdiction, so the jurisdiction in which you are. But, uh, okay, so my question is, we got to the question, is there a workaround? Can I hide my U.S. digital income for remote working by depositing into a separate U.S. account where I would continue to pay U.S. taxes on my independent contract work? Or would this be a big risk with high consequences when filing taxes in Portugal? Uh, bottom line, if I'm paying almost 50% tax in Portugal, well, 28% plus the social charges, I might, it might not be worth doing the work at all. I hope not. I love my work. Many thanks for your insights. Okay. 
Portugal, like most European countries, taxes you on your worldwide income. Uh, like many European countries, there are carve-outs. So in Spain, there's a Beckham Law. In Ireland and the UK, there's Resnon Dom. Uh, Italy has it. Uh, Switzerland has a flat tax. Portugal's version of a carve-out is the non-habitual residence program, which allows certain categories of income to either be taxed lower than normal or not taxable at all. Unfortunately, it's a great scheme. I mean, it's good but it doesn't really favor business owners or people who are still working. So that is something to consider. And, you, and you're right, even if you were to qualify uh, under the NHR as a high value added professional and you get the flat tax at 20%, then you, you're right, you have to add social security onto that. So, you, and you, so you're looking at 40, over 40%. Uh, and if you don't get the benefit of being a high value added professional, then you could be looking at closer to 50%. So you, you're absolutely correct. It may not be worth it. We cannot, and I don't think any serious qualified professional would advocate hiding the income. It needs to be declared. If it is that work is being performed within Portugal, it needs to be declared to Portugal, it will be taxable to Portugal. Just like with the US, you have to file something called a, an FBAR, a foreign bank account report, or FinCEN form 114. Portugal has the equivalent as well. So with Portugal, when you become tax resident in Portugal, you need to declare all your foreign accounts. It's not as intrusive or is not as uh, explicit as the US disclosure, where you have to look at maximum balances, you have to disclose all of that. Uh, the U.S. is probably one of the, the biggest ones, but yeah, it, but it does mean that you need to declare the account. So I would, you know, just don't go to Portugal with anything but an intent to just follow 100% of the rules. And maybe if it is that it's going to be a huge tax burden to you, maybe it's worth looking at other jurisdictions. There's Spain next door under the Beckham law, although that has some, you know, Spain has some it's not the perfect solution. There's no panacea. There's no perfect jurisdiction in Europe. There's always some catch somewhere somehow. But you know, for the five-year duration, Beckham Law may be a better deal for you, and it's as close to Portugal anyway. But definitely, you go in there thinking full disclosure. There is no workaround. It needs to be declared once you are spending your time in Portugal. Sorry about that, but yeah, hope that helps. Next question, I'm a US citizen who recently decided to pick up my work and move to somewhere with a better climate. Good for you. I've placed myself in Costa Rica for several months. I have confirmed that Costa Rica does not have any tax implications for non-residents working remotely for non-Costa Rican companies. So this would be once you're not tax resident in, in Costa Rica, so you're not staying long enough to trigger tax residency. Okay, that's fine. I have both 1099 and W-2 income from the US while I'm working remotely. Okay, fine. I have not lived abroad for more than 330 days I left in June 2021. How does this affect my 2021 U.S. taxes, if at all? How would it affect my 2022 taxes if I choose to stay abroad for the rest of the year? Okay, Dana, so great question. Great question. So from a U.S. perspective, uh, assuming that you have not, yeah, so you've been outside for more than, for less than six months. You can, uh, I know you, when you, when you mentioned the 330 days, you, you're thinking of the Section 911 foreign earned income exclusion, which perhaps is the, one of the best benefits for U.S. exposed persons who are abroad. So you, the amount moves with inflation, I think right now for 2021 is 112000 So like the first $112,000 of income is completely protected. You declare it on your tax return. But using a Form 2555, it is more or less sheltered from U.S. tax. Now, that applies to the W-2 income. So generally speaking, once you qualify for that, if you had W-2 withholding, it could be refunded to you. But it does not work with 1099 income. Uh, 
So with 1099, you'd still, I mean, you'd be enjoy the Section 911 exclusion on the income tax. But remember, as an independent contractor, 1099 contractor, you also subject to self-employment taxes of 15.3%. That will still apply. Now, the thing is, in order to qualify for the foreign and income exclusion, you do so in one of two ways. Uh, I have a really long article on this on our website, HGG.tax. We have like 2,000 articles on international tax and probably like a thousand videos, but you can qualify in terms of the bona fide residence test, which is subjective and qualitative and a physical presence test, which is objective and quantitative. So basically just being very, very brief, the bona fide residence test, in order to qualify for that, you need to be a bona fide resident of another jurisdiction. You need to have a home there, a place of abode, you need to be paying taxes there. It'd be great if you have family there. So, you know, you paint them, you know, your visa allows you to be there for a while. So you are definitely bona fide resident of a jurisdiction outside of the US. So you qualify that way. Other ways on the physical presence test, which is 330 days, right? So you need to stay out of the US. You can get a partial, potentially, I mean, I'm not giving advice, but this is something to take to your tax team. You can get a partial, partial benefit based on the foreign income exclusion because the physical presence test is 330 days, but it doesn't have to be in the same calendar year. So you can do a form 4868 and apply for an extension. And that may give you time to count 330 days, an extension to, you get an extension to October, right? And based on that, you can get a partial. So you can, this and there's potential for tax optimization there. So speak to you, you prefer tax team around a partial uh, exclusion based on filing an extension. But of course, regardless of what you do, remember an extension is an extension of time to file, not time to pay. Taxes are still due in April 15th, you know, April 18th, so mid-April, regardless, right? So. Hope that helps, Dana. Next question. Okay, I, I'm gonna jump into another platform and pull some more questions out there. So, sorry, when when my Zoom, when my Wi-Fi crashed, I lost some of the questions that were asked. So those who are in Zoom, if you ask a question before Kelly, please put it back because it's, it's no longer in my feed. Anyway, so the IRS sent a letter to my address overseas. It took over four months to get to you. You're lucky. We know people that took way longer. It's nuts right now, right? I'm in Asia. It was stamped through Estonia. Yes, it's, you're not alone. It, there's, it's just a way it's working. It's being printed and mailed from other parts of the world, Okay. So I filled out and said, and send a form in December. Okay, it still hasn't changed. Okay. All right, so you have an issue with the IRS, you've reached out to them. If it is that you type something, okay, right. So best bet is to give them a call, right? Because right now replying by mail, like when, I mean, we're in tax season already. In January, last month, they had something like six or seven million pieces of unopened mail. So this, this includes, we have clients whose 20, 20 returns have yet to be processed because they paper filed. So sending something in the mail right now, that is not going to be processed in a hurry. And if, if whatever the notice that you got is time sensitive, you need to get on that phone. I know it's hard because the stats show that the IRS answers less than 10% of its calls. So yeah, it's going to be a long wait. You're looking at two, maybe three hours on the phone, but you need to speak to somebody. If this thing is time sensitive, you need to get through to them and writing a letter may not be enough because things are sometimes automated. So some of these notices just get, done automatically and whatever the the escalation will be automated as well so they don't hear from you in x number of days uh whatever it is the time that they've given they move up to the next stage where there'd be a notice of intention to to take to, to freeze your bank accounts and, and yeah it gets really really messy and interest and penalties are being calculated as well so i'm sorry there's no way you need to get on the phone 
and really get this thing sorted out. Remember that you can also get full visibility of whatever the correspondence trail has been by going to irs.gov and registering for your tax account. So you can now, it's a new feature, using ID now. So once you're able to verify your ID, you, you, I did it, you know, you do a video call with somebody, you hold up your, ID, your driver's license or whatever, they verify you and they give you access to all your records. So you don't even need to wait on the mail. It's kind of like email, right? Because you can see what the latest notice is. So get on that, do not let it slide, especially if you're outside of the US and it's maybe it's the big bill, your passport can be affected. So please, uh, I would get on that as soon as possible. Moving down. Okay, so someone's asking, I intend to spend one year in the UK next year. If I work remotely for a company in LATAM or the US, Latin America, the US, should I have to pay any taxes in the UK or my home country? If so, <laughs> why should I? <laughs> that income is not from a US source. I'll be kind of a tourist to them. Okay. <laughs> So I know that sometimes the tax rules seem counterintuitive and it's not how we would logically see things, but it is what it is, right? So in this case, the UK HMRC, which is like the IRS in the UK, so Her Majesty Revenue and Customs, they have something called a statutory residence test, right? So based on the number of days that you are in the UK, you, and it's a test, you can go to HMRC, gov.uk and you can do it the test you just answer a bunch of questions and they will spit out an answer so based on that if it says that you are tax resident you are taxable on your worldwide income i repeat you're taxable on your worldwide income now remember earlier we were speaking uh, about portugal with the nhr they, as a carve out on that, so a way of you know being a little bit more tax efficient. The UK does have something like it, uh, where you're resident dom or you resident non domicile, so you can be taxed on an, uh, a remittance basis. So you can be taxed on only income that is earned in the UK, as opposed to something that's earned outside of the UK. And you may have seen that somewhere as you do your searches, but that really is designed for investment income not for earned income because you know you are exercising this uh you you're working in the u.s even though you're working for someone that's outside of the u.s this i mean oh sorry i'm sorry in the uk even though you're working for someone outside of the uk you're performing those services in the uk and if you're a tax resident in the uk you need to pay taxes on that even if it's on a remittance basis because it's being earned there it's not investment income it's earned income right so yes then then your question is well you know how are they gonna know right well technology right so if it is that you are there for an extended period of time where you trigger uh residence tax residence in in, in the uk and you know there's a the money is being wired back and forth using a credit card whatever the case may be hmrc can find out uh they can i would not mess with hmrc i suggest that you speak with an uk accountant and you know work and and you know if it is that you intend so you're not yet in the uk maybe there's an opportunity for tax planning maybe you can speak with because once you're there and you trigger residence it's probably kind of too late but if it is that you plan to go, I think you should speak with a UK tax team. So, and, and see if there's any way of optimizing your position. Because once the clock starts ticking and you trigger that residence, it's 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 done, right? But we cannot, and I, I don't think any, again, like I said before, no qualified professional would in this day and age advocate. We live in the age of transparency. You know, you have tax authorities that monitor social media of its residents, right? You, if you are playing fast and loose with the rules, they're going to figure it out. All right, next question, scrolling down. If a U.S. citizen renounces their residency, a U.S. citizen renounces your U.S. residency, so I guess you renounce, is there a China? Okay. 
So as a U.S. citizen, you cannot renounce your U.S. residency, even if you're not resident. So before I get to the rest of your question, I just want to stop then as a, as a point, right? Even if you're not resident in the U.S., if you move from Louisiana to London, the IRS does not care that you no longer live in Louisiana. If you move from Miami to Milan, the IRS does not care that you're no longer living in Miami you're gonna be taxed on your worldwide income regardless. The only way around that is if you move to Puerto Rico or if you give up your US passport. So once you give up your US passport, that's that, that renunciation of your citizenship, then you would only be taxed on your US source income. So if you, if you like have rental property or US investments that may be subject to US taxes, but whatever you do outside of the US after that renunciation is normally out of the reach of the IRS. So that's how it works, right? Is that, so I'm going to the rest of your question now. So is there a taxable transaction uh, if there are property owners? Is there taxable? So, okay, I'm not too sure what you mean, but here's, here's how I see it. So. In the process of renouncing, of renouncing, there is something called an exit tax. The exit tax will be triggered if you're what we call a covered expat. So when you become a covered expat in three ways, the two most popular ways would be if your liability, your average tax liability over the past five years is over a certain, over a certain threshold. So, so let's say it's more than 172,000 per year on average, or if your net assets are in excess of 2 million. So then you may be a covered expat and you would be subject to an exit tax. If you want, we can go into how that's calculated, but you will be subject to an exit tax. Assuming that you are not a covered expat, then once you renounce and you walk away, you're subject to your US source income. So if it is that you do have rental properties, the rental income will be taxable. If it is that you, you sell your home or sell a home, then that transaction will be taxable as well, capital gains tax. So... In terms of U.S. real estate, basically, you will still be subject to tax and whatever income or that arises from U.S. real estate. There are exceptions, as there always is, right? Uh, you know, I think we recently been speaking to clients about the portfolio interest exemption. So there are exceptions, there are workarounds, but they're not easy. They're pretty relatively complex. But generally speaking, yes, your U.S. real estate will still be subject to U.S. taxes even when you renounce. Moving down, have you heard of any new upcoming digital nomad visa countries? Yes, Kelly, and that list is getting longer every day because countries are, you know, catching on. Hey, this health crisis that we're going through, the name that I can't mention, otherwise we get censored, this ain't going away. Therefore, we need to attract longer term visitors as opposed to people who just come in for a weekend or one or two weeks uh, vacation, right? We need to look for longer stays. And one of the pioneers in that space, of course, has been Barbados, but there have been others as well. Bermuda, there's a whole list is getting longer. I think Brazil just recently announced one. Uh, South Africa's thinking about one, you, you know, Thailand, uh, Indonesia, therefore Bali. So the list is pretty long. You just need to work with, work out, you know, what your options are. And once you have decided and you've narrowed them down to a few, maybe then you can speak with your preferred advisor about the tax consequences to, to you moving. Because last thing you want is to go and get trapped in a tax situation, right? Although there are, you know, like Barbados being one of the forward thinking ones, they have passed local legislation so that you will not be taxed, even if you're working remotely, whatever it is that arises from you being there, not subject to tax, even when you are there for a year on that welcome visa, you're not gonna be taxed. So, so yeah, good luck, Kelly. Okay. Okay. All right, Lucandra. <laughs> Fantastic. So any more questions? Okay. Somebody's asking about being resident, no, uh, 
not being tax resident anywhere. So I'm assuming that you're not American, right? Because as I mentioned, once you're a US person, you're subject to taxes and you worldwide income, regardless of where you are, right? Doesn't matter. If it is that you're not American, then yeah. It's not as easy as people make it out to be on the internet, but it is possible. It is, you just need to keep moving. Uh, you need to be constantly moving, but it is possible. But what we have found with our clients, uh, you know, our clients are six and seven figure earners, right? So, they, you know, their situation is, is, is important and they, and if something happens, the consequences could be dire for them. So even though people talk about bank, uh, about taxes when it comes to being a perpetual nomad, they don't often think about banking and banking rules. So what the governments have been doing, are you, they've been using financial institutions uh, as police, more or less. So you've heard about FATCA for Americans. There's something called CRS, or the Common Reporting Standard or the Automatic Exchange of Information for non-Americans. But basically, they're also under that. AM, so these are just frameworks for information exchange. So even though you think that the UK doesn't know what you're doing in Bali, that bank account, that bank that you're banking in, in uh, Mandiria or whichever bank you're using in Bali may be reporting you to the UK. Or, you know, or if you're doing something in Singapore, but you're a tax resident in Bali, then the bank in Singapore is probably maybe reporting you to the Indonesian tax office. So there's that exchange of information going on. But there's also the, the so the tax authorities if it is that you are tax resident and not doing the right thing, they can catch up with you. But the banking rules, the AML rules and client KYC rules. So anti-money laundering and know your customer rules. So they always need to know how you're earning money. So if it is that you are independently wealthy and all you're doing is living off interest, well, that's fine. But if it is your money being earned in some way, shape or form, the bank would need to verify that it's legit. And, you know, banks feel very uncomfortable when you can't give them a fixed place of abode. They get very, very nervous. And their knee-jerk reaction is just to close their account and get rid of you. Alternatively, sometimes, you know, when there's an audit or whatever, and they just want to update their records, making sure the KYC stuff is being done, and they don't know where you're being taxed because that is a question they're going to ask you where you tax resident they get very uncomfortable if you can't tell them and you know I, I give the story all the time we've had several clients in southeast asia who've been living there for a while and obviously were banking there and they're originally from parts of europe at some point in time they want to return to europe whether in one case one per, one guy wanted his mom was not doing well health-wise so he wanted to go back to his European country of origin. And, you know, he gets back home and he's trying to wire money from his Southeast Asian bank to his European bank. And they're blocking it. Why? Because they need to verify this transaction. How was this money earned? And if he can't demonstrate that, and no, nobody, no bank really would accept an invoice, really, because give anybody five minutes on Microsoft Excel and they have an invoice, right? what they look for to make them feel comfortable. They ask for different things, but I think one thing that makes most banks feel very comfortable is a tax return. A tax return from a government, you know, it's a government document that says this money has been declared, this money has been taxed, it's clean, it's legit. Nothing to see here. So circling back to your question, you can be a perpetual nomad, you can be resident nowhere, but be conscious of the banking rules and you may be blocked or you know prevented you, you may be kicked out of the banking system you know or unable to transfer your money internationally because you can't prove it right and even that bank where it's dumb or where it's being held right now they may eventually have problems so just a heads up <clears throat> next question so i'm just going to check some of the other platforms for any questions that may be asked okay nothing here nothing there okay 
So one more, okay. For those who were trapped, well, unable to travel because of COVID, sorry, I can't use that word, because of the health crisis. And okay, so you may have triggered tax residency. So it really depends. Uh, some countries were better than others. I think one of the best in class was probably Australia. So the ATO, uh, the Australian Tax Office, they were pretty proactive. So they knew that flights were, you know, flights weren't happening. And basically the borders were closed. You needed to get permission to enter Australia or leave Australia. And for those who were in Australia and unable to leave and trigger tax residence as a result, the ATO has been pretty understanding. I mean, they're probably one of the better actors. And then on the flip side, you had Spain. So Spain doesn't care. Spain doesn't care. Spain is probably one of the more aggressive tax, tax authorities to deal with. So they don't care why you were there, uh, you couldn't leave. They don't want to hear all of that. They just want their money. So it really depends on the jurisdictions that were triggered by you being there and unable to, to move on. So you were there longer than you intended to be because of circumstance, circumstances beyond your control. So again, you'd probably want to speak with a tax professional in uh, qualified in the jurisdiction in which you're having challenges and they can perhaps help you work through whatever the tax office is telling you. So good luck with that. Okay, on that note, any more questions? No? All right, so thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Sorry about the, the technical issues, but um, I'm having issues with, with this hotel Wi-Fi. Again, hj.tax, we have these live streams every week. Uh, feel free to join us at any time or send us any questions and be happy to, to speak with you. Okay, thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Dana. This has been recorded and it will be available on your preferred uh, podcast platform. See you next time. Bye-bye. Here are four ways we can help you. Number one, sign up for free webinars on U.S. Expat Texas and International Entrepreneur Texas at www.htj.tex. Number two, stream premium educational videos at www.htj.tex. Number three, contact us for tax optimization consult offer Zoom. Number four, high net worth. We can quote for doing your U.S. international taxes returns. Our books and upcoming events are available at htj.tax. Please subscribe, like, share, and comment below. Email us at help at htj.tax to engage us to advise on international tax or business matters.